0: Show that remembers that one of the main attractions of the 1984 Liverpool International Garden Festival was an inflatable maze called the Pentac, I think that's how it's pronounced, where you were very strongly advised and strictly enforced to go through by the correct route in single file. I'm Tim Worthington, and joining me today to talk about some of the things that she remembers that nobody else ever seems to is book reviewer Joanne Shepherd. Jo, what you up to? Where can we find it?
1: You can find me on Twitter, where I'm Red Sky at Night, and you can also find me on my book reviews blog, which is called Breakfast at libraries joanne-shekler.com okay well i've nicely checked to see if you've ever reviewed the
0: book that your first choice was based on but this is something that i can't work out why but it's really lodged in my mind it seems to be common for a lot of people so bypassing the clip i found on youtube it has a very patronizing introduction for philip Schofield pretending to be french let's just hear the theme music <laughs> That was the theme from The December Rose, BBC One 1986, though I could have sworn it was earlier. Joe, what was this?
1: The December Rose was one of those children's BBC drama series, one of the sort of grim Victorian ones. They seem to do a lot of those uh, sort of historical oh, yeah. drama series. But this was one of the kind of grittier ones. So it wasn't kind of bright, cheerful Edwardian stuff, you know, the kind of E. Nesbitt kind of thing. It was much more, I suppose, much more kind of Baker Street Boys, sort of grubby <sighs> (sighs) orphan's chimney sweeps and the main character was a child chimney sweep called Barnacle who I can't quite remember how it how he became embroiled in this kind of intriguing plot but he ended up sort of being taken in by I think a bargeman who was played by that guy that looks a bit like John Virgo Tony Haygarth who was in a lot of kind of period dramas at the time and what I remember about the December Rose was it being really quite bleak quite Creepy, quite grim, if I remember rightly, quite. Dark And it felt quite sort of grown up in a weird way. So grown up that it had the word shit in it, which was unheard of for a, a children's BBC drama that went out at half past four. Yeah, this is something that's really bothered me for a while because
0: I remember for some reason they tried to put in inverted commas, I mean, there was worse in the December roads, which we will come back to, but language into all these children's BBC dramas around <laughs> that time. I can't work out why. There was the cuckoo sister with the, I mean, we talked about this a couple of times on here, but the kind of lost old... Older sister that turned into a family who, you know, a very yes. polite middle-class family who was kind of a punk who used salty language, should we say. Yes. There were a number of other examples. There was Aliens in the family with the two bickering stepdaughters who occasionally got very derogatory about each other's kind of <laughs> adolescent development, which, you know, <laughs> on the number levels you would not get away with that now but what was the need for this one line I really don't understand what purpose you know, it served it, apart from to get some kids
1: sniggering yeah it's really odd and it was in the book as well because I had the book of the December Rose which was a like a TV tie-in edition it said it's by Leon Garfield who also wrote Smith and the strange affair of Adelaide Harrison and lots of other sort of quite sinister Victorian stories yeah the wordship was in the book as well now I don't know if the TV series was based on the book or whether it was a novelization of the series but yeah and I remember I remember being, when I bought the book from the Puffing Club at school, I remember immediately kind of flicking through to see if the swear was in there. And I was delighted to see that it was. I don't really know how they got away with it because I seem to remember in the kind of mid 80s when this went out that shit was like quite a bad swear. (laughs) It wasn't like bloody. It was like one of the worst swears I seem to remember. It was one that you'd have really got told off for if you'd said it at school or indeed at home. In fact, if I said it now at home, my mum would probably tell me off. So I don't really know. I mean, it was, to me, that was like a post watershed swear even so i don't really know how they got away with it like did people complain i don't know i've no
0: idea but i remember people writing the point of view because somebody had naff off in grange hill and you know people <laughs> were watching grange hill for the slightest thing to jump on but even so and also it was only a couple of years after this that you know you say after the watershed but that dave allen got in all that bother for ending that very long routine about the man clocking on and clocking off retiring and they gave him a fucking clock yes and there were questions in the house about that <laughs> <laughs> you know, famously, at the end of his next show, he didn't say goodnight and may your God go with you. He just said Good night and walked off, you know, which is his way of responding to it, which is really, really classy. But yeah. how did they get away with this? I don't remember any controversy at all. Or about the other kind of instances of it. I mean, go back a bit further. There were very disturbing things in a lot of these kinds, because of, they did, like you say, a lot of these kinds of serials, and things like the Moon Stallion were really quite unsuitable for kids. But in this, as well as the swearing, it opens with a weighted down body of a woman being
1: dumped in (laughs) is it in the thames i can't remember yes yes i think so there was a lot of like there was murder in it it was kind of in some ways a murder mystery and i seem to remember that part of the plot now i'm quite hazy on the plot but i seem to remember that part of the plot revolved around a kind of planned terrorist attack in the style of Joseph Comrade's The Secret Agent it was extremely dark and also I th- Barnacle and the character played by Tilly from House of Elliot who was always a maid in all Victorian things for <laughs> a penit, just popped up in everything like that they were the only sort of children in it that I remember it was mostly about adults and quite an adult storyline and it was all sort of very gritty and grubby and bleak and the sun was never out and it was always like a bit damp and foggy and literally as Barnacle said they were sailing down the river with horse shit because it was a, the barge was carrying manure apparently I don't know why um, <laughs> I don't know why you would need to transport manure to anywhere really I mean that, you know when everything was horse drawn surely there was just manure everywhere you didn't need to move it around when I think of it now I was like that was like a children's version of like ripper street or something <laughs> it was It wasn't at all kind of cosy. It wasn't like the Box of Delights, which was spooky but cosy. It was quite frightening and quite threatening. And yet the really weird
0: thing is, I mean, the whole early history of BBC video is a fascinating thing in itself. The stuff they chose to put out that, you know, nobody was going to buy, especially at those ridiculous prices. But there was a VHS and I think a Betamax as well of the December Rose kind of edited into the movie format. But for the video (laughs) release, they cut out the swearing and they cut out the opening scene. Now, how come they were suitable for, you know, the, sort of the BBC? But I mean, I know there was a the whole thing about, you know, there had just been the video nasty thing. Classification had just been brought in. Nobody quite knew how to apply it. And then you get weird things like that Tom Baker, Doctor Who, where uh, because it was instructional criminal behaviour, they had to cut out somebody pushing a key through a door onto a newspaper and pulling it under. But... <laughs> why was this on video in the first place I mean I'm led to believe these were cut I've never seen it because you know it goes for like oil barren prices these
1: days but why were they suddenly unsuitable when it came to video yeah god knows god knows the other thing I remember about the swear was that I mean we all sort of talked about it the next day at school and I fully expected this to be raised <laughs> I was like right surely someone will deal with this I expected it to be raised either on points of view or even on the Sort of kid's version of Points of View Take Two, which I think Philip Schofield presented, didn't he? Because I do remember someone, some very, some very outraged child writing into Points of View about a swear in another programme, which was much more mild than the shit of the December Rose. I think it was bloody or bleeding or something like that, and that was in a, I think it was in a, there was a drama series about a kid who was a sort of tennis prodigy and whether he was going oh, go to go on. point! Yes, they yes, do say bloody break, in break, it. Yes. <laughs> and there was, they said bloody and apparently twice bleeding as well and a child an angry child wrote in to take to about that and Philip Schofield had to like apologise to a ten year old who was horrified that they'd said bloody on Breakpoint so yeah but nobody I don't remember anyone writing in about the December Rose maybe they did I don't know well there's
0: two very interesting things about the credits list for this I mean you know a real top draw cast you got in this you mentioned Tony Haygarth. there was Bill Wallace Ian Hogg Patrick Malahy Judy Cornwell yes. all kinds of people it's... like that but Barnacles by courtney roper knight who was one of those child actors that you know they're everywhere for a couple of years i mean he was yes. in harbwick house he was the south african pupil in that he was in henry's leg that children's itv comedy oh, thriller yes, henry's leg, leg. Yes. and he was forever being youth in the bill and casualty and so on <laughs> and then disappeared and i assume it's just they get to you know 16 17 i think this isn't really what i wanted to do i'm off to study engineering or whatever but you do wonder what happened
1: to all of them you do wonder what happened to them i I remember him in. I think he was in the broom cupboard with Schofield and sort of, or one or on another children's BBC program, maybe where he was sort of interviewed about the December Rose. And he was incredibly. I remember sitting there with my mum, and she was going. She said, "Ah, oh, that's a precocious kid, isn't it?" Because he was very, <laughs> he was incredibly kind of confident and, and effusive about everything, and you know, super, super confident. But no, I don't remember. I do remember. Now you've reminded me about Henry's leg. I do remember him being in that, but I don't remember him being in anything else. I do remember that when he played barnacle he, he was actually much too big to be a child chimney because yeah. he was about like 14 or something and in reality i think the children that they sent up chimneys for reasons of practicality were you know they were sort of seven which is bleak isn't it but yeah he was much much too big there was no way that kid would have fitted up a chimney with any ease anyway but yeah i don't remember him being anything else either he gets trapped in the chimney in hardwick house
0: as well so maybe that's like a theme to it <laughs> that was his specialty in <laughs> spotlights for being in
1: chimneys it's like, but, you know I'm, I'm, fitting I'm... Chimneys to us
0: now <laughs> but I remember him being on I assume it must have been Saturday Superstore I'm going to have to be very careful about how I phrase this so it doesn't sound wrong but it was his birthday when he appeared on it and I remember Sarah Green asking which birthday it was in terms of was it appropriate to give him a birthday kiss? Because if he was 16, that would have been OK. If he was 15, not. Which mm. sounds wrong, but she was actually doing the right thing. Does that make any sense <laughs> at all?
1: No, it does make sense. It does make sense. And it is, it is a bit odd, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, there's that thing where you're sort of on the cusp of being... I guess that happens with all child stars where they're sort of on the cusp of being a kid and being a grown-up. A bit like Jack Wilde from um, Oliver. <laughs> <laughs> who sort of didn't really get any taller, but then sort of had like an older man's face. And it's very hard to kind of cast someone when they're sort of not a child anymore, if everyone's always seen them as a child, I guess. But I remember, I'm sure he was quite good in it. I remember him being pretty, Mm. I remember him being good in it. I don't remember it being one of those really terrible sort of Sylvia Young's type performances that I used to really hate when I was a child, because I thought other children performing was just showing off. I remember him being pretty good. But yeah, God knows, God knows what happened to him.
0: Well, the other thing is, it was directed by Rennie Rye, who's a name you'll see all over big heavyweight dramas now. But at the time, he did a number of things like this, he did. The Box of Delights, all these serials around the time. He also did The Weird When Children's BBC for a couple of years, did Ghost Stories at Christmas for children, and he did Ghost in the Water. I can't remember if he did The Bells of Astacote or not, but it's interesting that, you know, he started out doing this and has now become one of the biggest TV directors there is. And at no point did someone say, hmm, you had the word shit in a children's serial. We can't have you doing <laughs> yeah. Lewis or whatever it is.
1: Maybe that was why he became, maybe that was why he ended up doing Heavy, yeah, that. I <laughs> said, that's probably why he ended up doing heavyweight dramas, wasn't it? It's like, you, if you can't resist putting the word shit into things, we're just going to have to put you on grown-up television.
0: Okay, we're moving on to your next choice now, which is something that disturbed children in the 80s for altogether different
2: reasons. Right, chaps. Intelligence Wallace tell us damn Colorado's ready for another push. Hopes to establish forward positions in potato fields here, here, and here. It'll cost a pretty penny if those spud bashes ever get through. Means your potato crops are cropper. It's crunch time for crisps, bangers, goes your mash, and you've certainly had your chips. Voracious blighter, your Johnny Colorado. However, cove's not difficult to spot. Less than half an inch long, black and yellow stripes running front to back. Not to be confused with our chaps, Oh, ladybugs. We've got the airports, docks, and that sort of thing covered. But what we really need is more lookouts in shops and homes. So if you spot suspect Colorado Beetle, but like him, March him off to your nearest police station. Come on, chaps. If you want to earn your stripes, keep your eyes peeled for the Colorado. Okay, that was a public
0: information film warning of the dangers of the colorado beetle. joe why have i put this
2: here
1: the colorado potato beetle was an invasive species of beetle from i assume from colorado that seemed to be invading britain in the early 80s i think it was like about the size of a thumbnail it was a sort of little kind of yellow and brown striped thing if i remember rightly but we were led to believe that if one of these beetles made it, onto, <laughs> made it onto British soil, not only would it decimate, not only would the potato crop be gone and we'd never have chips again, we were also sort of led to believe, as I remember it, that Britain would just become a, a horrendous kind of post-apocalyptic dust bowl, like something out of Cormac McCarthy's The Road. I genuinely was terrified at the prospect of one of, one of these beetles <laughs> making it into Britain. I don't know whether in my head it's all just kind of linked up with the fact that around that time, there was an awful lot lot of Television around, all, and I'm sort of conflating the, the end of the world in my head with this fairly unfrightening-looking beetle. But yeah, and I don't know. I mean, I don't know. Did any ever get here? I've never sort of. I don't think I knew anyone who'd ever seen one. Whenever we found a, like, whenever I was a kid, I was the sort of kid that used to like lifting up a rock in the garden and seeing what things were crawling around underneath it. And whenever I found sort of an interesting beetle or anything, my dad would always say, "Oh, it's not. It's not. It's not striped, is it? It's not. It's not a Colorado potato beetle because if it is, um, but I never found one." thank God. I'd, I'd probably never have recovered from the trauma.
0: Well, my main memory of first being aware of them is, it was the kind of thing you'd see where, you know when you went to kind of like nature reserves for a day out, the kind of places you didn't want to go to, and then the visitor yeah. centre there'd be like a poster on the wall in the background with a big drawing of a Colorado beetle yes. saying, yes. if you see one call this number. <laughs> like you, I was constantly looking out for them. There were a lot of things about, I think it's the thing of, in those days there was less caution about messages that were sent out to adults about the idea that children might see them as well you know there were things like these be rabies public information films during children's programs without really explaining what it was and there was the whole panic about giant hogweed which memorably Bob Fisher talked about looks unfamiliar where you know this <laughs> yes. plant was like going to march up your drive and <laughs> attack you all kinds of things I mean you think of how frightened people were at quicksand yeah, there weren't hobby, really but... warnings about quicksand but the message was just conveyed in completely the wrong way it made it sound that like the Colorado
1: beetle was going to get you yes completely I was so t- I was t- terrified of them, I thought that we would all starve if the Colorado potato beetle got yeah. here. Now, I mean, this beetle must, I understand that it must be a problem and that it wrecks potato crops, but I mean if it's from Colorado, they have potatoes in Colorado, surely. It can't be that <laughs> much of a problem. People must have there's no shortage of potatoes in this day and age. There was no shortage of potatoes in the 80s. It was most of what I remember eating was potatoes in the 80s, to be honest. So I don't understand how they were ever causing enough of a problem to be worthy of that much alarm. And you're right, that they were you know it was one of those things that it was often that the posters were quite alarming and i i might i'm probably remembering this wrong but i'm sure <laughs> this can't be right but in my head i think that you were supposed to literally take it to the police if you found one <laughs> now i'm sure that can't be right but i, <laughs> no, I think you're right think i remember that actually can you you imagine can you imagine walking into your local police station and saying i've found this beetle (laughs) and then like you know (laughs) taking it out in a matchbox, and the police would just be like what run along what's the (laughs) matter with you (laughs) get a grip you know and giant hogweed was another one that i was terrified of and in fact we did have giant hogweed growing not far from my house where i used to take my dog for a walk when i was a kid and i was convinced that if i so much as brushed against it you know i would blister and end up looking like the singing detective and my other half is terrified of uh, was terrified of rabies as a child (laughs) for the very reason you described because he would have just been sat there watching junior kickstart or whatever and suddenly um, an information film about rabies with a a slathering dog would come on and... Well, the one that I
0: really remember disproportionately freaking me out was there was a public information film called Diamonds Are For Danger which I've since seen as an adult which is kind of done in a very jokey way. You know, it's got a kind of like James Bondy intro with glittering diamonds turning into, you know, the diamond hazard signs you get on tankers and so on. And then there's a kind of a comedy thing with comedy music and two, you know, middle-aged women in headscarves spotting a crash that you don't see and like, you know, dashing to a phone box in terms of this music. When I... Was young, I didn't understand that context, and I thought it was genuinely if you saw one of these vehicles with the diamond sign on, disaster was liable to happen. (laughs) I remember spotted them and thinking, Uh oh, I hope we go in the other direction. Because you you know we grew up with the cold war was around james bond films were constantly on tv everything was about a secret organization that might be transporting dangerous matter yes in broad daylight but yeah that, that, i think that's what i thought it was that you know there were these super villains carting toxic material around planning to unleash
1: it from these big tankers well i definitely thought when i try and sort of explain this to people younger than me <laughs> they look at me as if i'm an idiot but i definitely remember as a child that the kind of constant threat of imminent disaster just being around at all times i don't know how anyone sort of my age got through their childhood without sort of a, a, a serious anxiety problem because every i just re- i remember john craven talking about the doomsday clock on Newsround and stuff like that and one of my set books when i was about 12 or 13 at secondary school was zeb for zachariah which is a really bleak really nice really really grim really and and also and we watched the TV adaptation which is really not suitable for kids at all Anthony Andrews is in it full frontal nude for a start Uh, and people with radiation sickness and you know people's hair falling out and when the wind blows and just non-stop disaster so in my head I think the poor Colorado potato beetle which is you know let's face it it's just a beetle that eats potatoes was kind of conflated (laughs) yeah and I was really really worried about it but I often sort of think like what are they still around the, the Colorado potato beetles if I found one, what would I do
0: now? I don't know. Take it to the police, but that does Take bring me police. neatly <laughs> into one of the two things I found out about it, because they did try to find out whether there been any incursions into the UK, and everything is very, very vague about that. Almost as if it might not have happened, and they don't want to <laughs> say. The first thing I found out was, in the 80s, the USSR thought it was invented by the CIA as kind of a Cold War psyops tool. And the other thing was, the alarm was first raised in 1811 by a Thomas Nuttall. Now, given that he was basically saying about these Beatles, send them more Do you think he might have had a descendant later? Who, <laughs> Poor knuckles of the Ukip's, by any yes, chance? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I doubt he'd be very keen on the Colorado beetle because you know his lobby were kind of very fond of telling us, you know, in the event of No Deal Brexit, what would be the matter? We could all eat potatoes, and that destroys his argument, right? There. But I do have to say, though, that all this paranoia that we had in the 80s has been kind of made a mockery of by the past year when, you know, everyone was expecting everything to break down and things become a feral society and it didn't happen. And one thing I've noticed is throughout the whole of Twitter's existence, if something so much has happened as, like, Jeremy Corbyn was photographed holding up a Starbucks cup, somebody would say, OMG, Threads. In all theory <laughs> and post of image of you know the opening caption of threads. Not the spider spinning the web, which is the actual scary bit, but just the letters over Sheffield. But they <laughs> for some reason they've stopped mentioning that. Isn't that strange? Yes. Yeah. Almost yeah. like there's no currency in them for scaring other people anymore. The arguments have
1: been very much undermined, I think.
0: Okay, well moving on to your next choice now, which involves somebody who, I'm sure in his own way, was very desperately concerned about the Colorado Beetle, probably as a menace and for its survival in its own so price.
2: Now oh, I always wanted a pet, not the kind that the other kids get. I didn't want a dog or a cat or a parrot
0: or a mouse. But I was walking in the woods by the shore when I found what I was looking for, with a neck like a lamppost and body like the side of a house. He gave me a smile. Before
2: I knew He was my friend He was my friend he an elephant too Then nothing like him in the zoo Blunt as all oh, Will you wait for me
0: Don't hide your head Up there in your favorite tree You know I just want a word with you I can see that you're very shy
2: But how can I have a word When you're away
0: the show Okay, that was a little bit of Brontosaurus Will You Wait for Me by David Bellamy. Joe, what's the story behind
1: this? Again, I think I would have been around four or five when this happened, when this assault on the charts <laughs> happened. And at the time, it's impossible to explain how sort of omnipresent David Bellamy seemed to be at that time. If he wasn't on a programme, there would be someone doing a really terrible impression of him. He was one of those people that was completely recognisable and because he was so distinctive in the way that he spoke and presented he was really easy to do a poor impression of so he was everywhere and I presumably decided to cash in on this by releasing a single called Brontosaurus Will You Wait For Me which now David Bellamy was a botanist right so I don't quite know why he was positioning himself as a dinosaur expert unless I'm really badly doing him a disservice in terms of his field of expertise but I thought he was a botanist so I don't know why he was doing dinosaur content other than the fact that kids like dinosaurs and maybe would have bought the record as I did the thing about it was was one he clearly you know he's David Bellamy he can't sing and two the lyrics didn't really Really stand up to, to much scrutiny, which even as a child, I would sort of, I you know, I, I kind of pick those lyrics apart in my head. So I think there was one line where he said, I'd take you home, nobody would know, I'd walk you every day. Now, I've seen a skeleton of a brontosaurus. <laughs> if you take that home, David, people are going to know it's a brontosaurus. Especially if you walk it every day as well. <laughs> where are you going to take it? It's the size of a house. <laughs> Like, it'd be like you'd be like taking a bungalow for a walk. You can't take it for a walk, David. I, d- I assume it never made the top forty. No, got I but I it got number eighty-eight. I was, I mean, I was eighty-eight. Not bad. Not bad considering how terrible it was. And the B side was just a spoken word thing about, I think, about Stegosauruses, where he just reeled off some some Stegosaurus facts, if I remember rightly.
0: Well, all I've been able to find out about it was it came out in nineteen eighty. It was on MD Records. It seems to be MD Records' only release, which is really weird. I mean, even you normally would expect. One one or two other singles on a label that just did a novelty single. But no, it's just that. It was written by Mike Croft and Chris Croft, about whom we can find out nothing other than the same year, they did The Dinosaur Record, which is an album of <laughs> children's songs on the dinosaur theme, which
1: included their re-recording of this with their vocals on. So wait, was did that come after Bellamy or before Bellamy? And did, was Bellamy's a cover version? Well, it was released afterwards. And I
0: have some oh. suspicions about the backstory behind the Bellamy thing, because it wasn't long after on Tiz- was Lenny Henry did War Will We Tweets which was a very big thing it was his Bellamy impression sort of singing a song with lots of R's and W's in it to his credit I remember distinctly I would love to see this again one week Chris Tarrant said they'd been into the archives and they found the original version of War War Retweets. And it was filmed with David Bellamy actually singing it, skipping around the field <laughs> and doing it in, you know, doing the actual War War Retweets bit. But was this him either thinking, oh, you know, I could have a go at this pop star lark, or thinking I need to convince people that I can sing properly?
1: I don't know. And also it couldn't even have had, like, I don't remember there being any kind of conservation message to it or anything. I mean, you know, we're not going to conserve dinosaurs, are we? If they're long gone. <laughs> so... Yeah, I don't remember it having any sort of purpose other than perhaps to make, like, say, either for David Bellamy to convince people that he could sing. And if so, it didn't work. Or just to make him a few quid. And I suspect that didn't work either. But I do remember him performing it. I saw him perform it on, I think, Blue Peter. And in my memory of this, he's wearing an orange boiler suit. (laughs) But I, again, possibly I've remembered that wrong, but it's quite a clear memory. Why would he have been wearing that? It's not Guantanamo Bay. Just like what? I've got a faint recollection. Wasn't he arrested around that time for
0: being too green on a protest? Something like that. <laughs> it might be the best trespass thing or something, but it was definitely he went to prison for his beliefs for a day or something
1: oh he was arrested for something wasn't he yes maybe that was maybe that was the orange boiler suit <laughs> <Just> satire <laughs> he was making a sickle point yeah seems unlikely but i well you can never you never know with bellamy do you he was a bit of a law unto himself as i remember rightly in his later years he became a climate change denier which is really disappointing this was something that used to happen a
0: lot more in those days was that people would make a record just because they were on tv and it would be a novelty thing and they wouldn't carry famously there's that terrible dance with me that Reginald and Kay, the newsreader did, which is him exhorting ladies in a spoken word fashion to come up and dance with him. <laughs> Not for any untoward purpose, just because he loves the dancing. And he, <laughs> he can't sing, he just says it, but that won Kenny Everett's Bottom 30, the world's worst records in the world in 1980. And Kenny Everett had him on the show and said, you know, what made you do that? And he really just said, well, I was asked to make a record and thought it'd be fun to see how one was made. And that was all the motivation, whereas <laughs> now, everyone on the TV that does a record, it has to be serious, it has to be showing their sensitive singer songwriter side, and they're surprised when nobody buys it.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd much rather the, the Boson Cat approach, to be honest, <laughs> if, if celebrities are going to make records. I do remember Eddie the Eagle having a record, which is. Fly was Eddie, really, fly! Yes, uh, <laughs> As you say, maybe, it is, maybe that was the thing with Bellamy. He just wanted to see how a record was made. I imagine he was a curious sort of man. Perhaps he just wanted a, a shot at it. I don't know. Like you say, he was everywhere. I
0: mean, there were endless series, of things like Bellamy's Backyard Safari or variations on that. Usually, where he'd be miniaturised for special effects and very badly superimposed in front of a millipede,
1: say, so, "Whoa, it's coming too close." Yes, I'd completely forgotten about that. I'd completely forgotten about like the miniature Bellamy. Hiding, I shrunk the Bellamy. I'd completely forgotten about that.
0: Well, this is the sort of person that you just don't get now experts aren't allowed to be like him or Heinz Wolf or anything. I think in those days, they just shoved people in front of the camera and said, do your
1: bit. Yeah, I agree. And Heinz Wolf is a good example. And also I, Magnus Pike always used to look really disheveled, didn't he? He'd sort of have like a, you know, he always looked the right state. But, I like that. I'd like more eccentrics on my television. Bellamy was the kind of celebrity that was ubiquitous enough to be featured in a Beano cartoon. Like he would have a little guest slot in the Beano. Yeah, he was that big. He was everywhere. He was on everything. Well, I've fairly certainly never made the cameo appearance of your next choice, which
0: it took me a long time to find anything to play in this, but I did find something. So here we go. ¡Suscríbete I had no idea that existed. That's a theme from a nineteen nineties animated adaptation of Roger Hargreaves' Tim Book 2 books, narrated by Ronnie Corbett. Joe, it's not the cartoon you're talking about, is it?
1: No, it's the books. Obviously Roger Hargreaves, massive Mr. Men franchise, hugely successful on everything. I had, you know, loads of books, merchandise everywhere, still popular today. But he also had the Little Miss books, which are a bit rubbish, let's be honest, not as good. He'd given up a little bit, I think. But then when he really started just phoning it in, was with the Timbuktu series, which were similar format to Mr. Men books, small, white, cheaply produced, I would imagine, certainly cheaply drawn. And each character was... And this is where it gets quite weird, because each character was ostensibly an animal, but kind of not really. The one I particularly remember, which I think was the only one that I actually had, was Buzz, who was kind of a bee, but then, like, not really a bee. So a kind of – if you can imagine a bee-based Mr. Man, that was kind of what (laughs) Buzz was. So, like, Mr. Bee, effectively (laughs) – Mr. Wasp. That was kind of what Buzz was. And there was, I think there was a a pig-like one that was called Oink as well. So they were all named after the sounds that they made. And they were rubbish. They were just not, they just didn't have the fundamental magic of the Mr. Men, I would say. And even as a child, you could read those books and think like, he's not putting the effort in with these, is he? These are the scrappy-do of Hargreaves' output. And also, set in Timbuktu, which I think in the books was some kind of island. But of course, Timbuktu is a real place. Timbuktu is a city. I think it's in Mali. I think it's Mali. But it's a real city. So did Hargreaves not know that? Did he just think that Timbuktu was kind of a just a sort of a, a byword for an imagined like cloud cuckoo land? kind of thing Did you think that was what Timbuktu was because no it's a real place and it's definitely not full of strangely anthropomorphized stylized animals named after the noises that they make
0: well it's interesting and well, I'll come back to what you said about Little Miss in a minute but Roger Hargreaves never seemed to be satisfied with the Mr. Men being as big as they were because this wasn't they weren't the only additional series he tried there were things like there was Roundy and Squarey, which were a bit more educational there was John Mouse who I had a few books of who was a bit kind of more I hesitate to say this but a bit kind of more literate and satirical you know he would have kind of adventures that commented on the state of the world and so on he was a very well-dressed mouse with Mr. Men's shoes on
1: I had forgotten about John Mouse but now I do remember John Mouse and I think I had a John Mouse book or two so I do remember John Mouse much better than the Timbuktu series which were dreadful
0: and there was, he tried to do books about the worm from Mr. Men and so on but it's just people never took to it I remember when Timbuk2 was launched I think it was in 78, 79 and there was a big blaze of publicity. I remember there being a newspaper feature about it. Somebody read out to me where it said there was going to be a cartoon of it made by the same people who did the Mr. Men cartoon and that never happened. And yet <laughs> it's completely disappeared. I mean Little Miss has survived but I do remember the reception being at the time. People get quite angry when you remember this now but it's just how the world was that kind of attempts to redo things for girls. We're seen even by girls as a bit patronising in those days. I remember the response to She-Ra at least in our household initially being that's stupid why can't girls like him? man and the, yeah. Yeah, Little Miss was a bit like that as well but they've become a bit more accepted over time accepted yeah. sounds wrong people love them but you know what I mean it, <laughs> we're, that, accepting. That went away.
2: we're
1: almost accepting women now <laughs> yeah. no I do have that recollection of Little Miss books as well in that it felt very much and obviously I am well, I was and still am a girl I found it a bit there was a, a strong element of kind of I felt like it was a token gesture so it was like well you know the boys have had their one if you must have your own version here's this now run along and play (laughs) it (laughs) was that I know, it was that kind of attitude And I, did, I had a couple of the Little Miss books But I never really got excited about them Whereas the Mr. Men ones I mean, I, when I was really little I used to love the Mr. Men And I had, I, in fact, I had a, a Mr. Strong themed birthday cake For I think my fifth birthday That my mum made for me And I remember having a lot of like, you know Mr. Men themed stationery And things like that when I was really little So I did really like the Mr. Men And, you know, like good on Hargreaves But yeah, he clearly wasn't satisfied With the colossal amount of money That he must have made from those What I am amazed about is that the t- Timbuk2 series was eventually made into a TV program in the 90s because who still knew? the Timbuktu series in the 90s. I don't know anyone who knows it now. Hardly anyone knew it when it was launched. Well, one of the very few things I found out about it, because these books did
0: completely disappear. There's virtually nothing online. I don't think there is even a full list of them. Some of them were, quote, reprinted to coincide with the animated series, indicating they've been unavailable for quite a long time. Not, you know, given new covers or whatever. So it wasn't a rebranding. They were actually reprinted. So they just
1: didn't land at all. Ronnie Corbett narrated it, I think they must have had some budget for that then. Like, I imagine Ronnie Corbett commanded a fairly high fee for narrating a kid's TV series. But yeah, it
0: smacks of desperation to me. Did he really, though? Because I'm not quite sure he enjoyed that higher profile after the two Roddies ended. Because, you know, they tried to do Bruce and Ronnie on the BBC which didn't work, and he just seemed to drift between other engagements after that.
1: And I think you're right, because after Sorry, I don't remember him really turning up it much. I do remember him sort of weirdly... Did he not have a slot on one of Ben he did, where yes. Where he would yeah. just sit in his chair in his sprinkle sweater and do a, and the producer said to me, style sort of shaggy dog story. But yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe Corbett was desperate at the time. Although the really
0: weird thing, which kind of gives me a route into your next choice which I'll come back to in a minute, <laughs> but do you remember he did the, was it Pizza Hut, the advertised with Alice Cooper? What? Yeah, and the, that there were kind of helped. the assumption was that, you know, haha, it's a hilarious mismatch pair. Apparently, because it's well known that Alice Cooper, you know what, obviously, he was around during Beatlemania in the 60s. He's a huge anglophile. And there's that yeah. hilarious bit where, credit to Dom Jolly for broadcasting this, but on Trigger Happy TV, when, you know, he used to ask people, sort of like, in a patronising way, do you watch Trigger Happy TV? And, you know, they'd just have to make up something, and say, oh yes, all the time. Alice Cooper would say, yeah, you're the guy on Paramount Comedy that does the bits between the shows. <laughs> but apparently they'd known each other since the early 70s, because when he toured the UK, he used to watch the two Ronnies, and he met them. And he's a golfer as well and played golf with both of them
1: yes Alice Cooper is a king golfer I reckon they might have I'm wondering whether Alice Cooper ever did anything on the pro-celebrity golf circuit
0: I've probably seen him on the two Ronnies like being in the sketch yeah. with those two
1: tramps or whatever <laughs> <laughs> Marching up and down on the spot for one of the musical numbers. <laughs> I'd forgotten about Alice, Alice Cooper and Ronnie Corbett being friends. So that's on a par with Leslie Crowther being Phil Linnett's father-in-law. Yeah. But, sort of, but going on like drinking binges with him. And, yeah. Yeah. Which it seemed like going on hell-raising booze binges with him. So yeah, it's a similar. It's a. It's an interesting. An interesting pairing that.
0: Okay. Well, for your next choice, we're going to be hearing a much more memorable advert, which I think I managed to get out of my brain at some point in the late 80s, and you. Now put it back in there again. And
2: what pray is so wonderful about these new KT wickers? Look at the name, look at the shape, Save of the munchy, crunchy taste. Oh, the wonderful thing about wickers these wickers are wonderful things. The shape is wonderfully crispy. They're terribly tongue-tickling. This right? Oh. Ever so munchy. Crispy. Oh. oh, the most wonderful thing about wickers is chicken and corn cocktail flavours. What a favour.
0: Okay, no prize for spotting that was an advert for KP Wickers, sung to the tune of The Wonderful Thing About Tickers. Joe, what were they?
1: Wickers were crisps and they were sort of looked a bit like a kind of larger scale shreddy, I would say. They were sort of a a latticework crisp, hence the name Wicker. I mean, they probably came in loads of flavours, but the only flavour that I remember them coming in was the chicken flavour, which was the chickeniest chicken thing (laughs) I've ever ever tasted now like so a crisp a chicken crisp now is usually kind of a seasoned roast chicken sort of very kind of savory seasoned salty maybe a a hint of sage like a sort of a crispy roast chicken skin flavor not so with kp wickers because they were more like more an artificial chicken i would say <laughs> but but somehow like it was so chickeny it almost kind of transcended chicken and i i'm guessing that the reason no crisps taste like that now is probably because it was flavoring was made illegal probably <laughs> but they were the chickeniest thing ever so a bit like if you were to eat a spoonful of neat bachelor's chicken copper soup what you dry. if
0: you were to eat
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> so when when we've all done that when we've all taken a spoonful of dry cup of soup powder it was sort of on a par with that but more so definitely more so or maybe the sort of the, the chickeny stuff in the bottom like the powder in the bottom that you get left in the bottom of a pot noodle but an old pot noodle when they were much sort of sortier and stronger tasting probably really really bad for you but they were my favourite crisps I wasn't a massive crisp fan as a child but I used to enjoy a pack of KP Wickers in my lunchbox and I would give anything to find any food that recreated that sort of essence of chicken that you used to get from a KP Wicker well they didn't Last very long which is
0: weird i mean the only other flavor i remember was prawn cocktail which is a flavor that kind of it disappeared off the map by the mid 80s and there are all kinds of conspiracy theories that it was a you know it was an eu thing blah 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 i think people just didn't like prawn cocktail <laughs> but the main thing i remember is this advert where just hearing the song alone doesn't do it justice it's an all singing or dancing thing with what looks like michael staniford as a kind of off-brand jester you know not timothy claypole <laughs> it's non-copyright the colours are different. Can't tell if it's him or not, because if it's him, he shaved his beard off. That would make sense, getting him in, to kind of add that bootleg Rent-A-Ghost authenticity to these crisps, but... They were everywhere for a very brief period of time and then disappeared. Maybe it was the thing about the flavouring, because it was really, really strong. Really, really
1: strong. Also, I find it odd that they were called Wickers, because sort of crisps at the time, especially crisps kind of like with, you know, wacky advertising sort of aimed at kids, which I assume if there was a rent a element to it, it would have been. And the Disney theme song, I suppose, as well. Like, Wickers is a really dull name, (laughs) It's a very dull thing to name a crisp after. I mean like at the time crisps were like discos Hula hoops wicker that's like your nan's linen basket isn't it it's it's sort of, it's your posh neighbors conserv. it's sort of terry and june's conservatory furniture wicker it's not like an exciting snack food so i found the wicker thing and also inexplicably not advertised by alan wicker why would you not get wicker to advertise those? yes he could have gone to ashby de la zooch
0: on the kind of like travel thing <laughs> and discovered the natives eating them <laughs>
1: exactly it would have been brilliant wickers would still be around if that idea Never ever come to fruition i don't remember the prawn cocktail ones but no i mean sort of apart from skips i don't i as you say prawn cocktail never really seemed to take off and also crucially doesn't taste anything like prawn cocktail but yeah the, the chickeniness of wickers i don't know how they achieved it there's an Ivor cutler song or poem where he asks a waiter to bring him some bicarbonate chicken <laughs> yes I always, whenever I hear it, I always think, oh, I bet that would taste like Wickers. It was magic. It was like the sort of thing that Heston Blumenthal would spend hours in his kitchen slash laboratory trying to create and would never manage to do it.
0: It was kind of the thing around then. Of they must have just discovered the technology that allowed them to do extruded maize snacks, which I suppose is <laughs> what you should really call them. And it must have been in the wake of Monster Munch being such a runaway success. But you've got all kinds of things like, I remember being very fond of the, obviously I would be, but the Marvel crisps around them which is like there's a Spider-Man which is basically Monster Munch but his mask Captain America his months, shield yeah. but you know
1: Monster Munch style things like piglets which Piglet. are really very odd yeah piglets piglets were another crisp that I like because I'm not that keen on potato crisps I mean I don't hate no one hates crisps, do they? But I would always favour a cheaply produced puffed maize snack over a kind of proper potato crisp. So, in my head, piglets were like a kind of, they were kind of very perfect little kind of puffed pigs, a bit like a crisp version of the pigs from past the pigs. <laughs> very small and quite perfectly formed kind of hollow pigs. I mean, they probably weren't like that at all. They were probably terrible. I don't remember what they tasted like, but I do remember having them in my lunch. And I also remember crisps that were supposed to be pizza flavoured, which were called Bitsa Pizza, which is a terrible name because unless you pronounce pizza in a really weird way, it doesn't rhyme. That annoyed me even at the time. And also the odd thing about those was that pizza flavoured crisps at the time, as far as I was concerned, a pizza, it probably had a French bread bake. (laughs) It was probably Frozen. And it probably just had cheese and tomato on it. So the idea of crisps sort of having flavours of different pizza toppings, I don't think I knew there were any other pizza toppings when I was that little. A lot of interesting May snacks around that time. I probably wouldn't have been allowed the Spider-Man ones because they were probably, the presence of Spider-Man on the pack probably made them like, you know, a couple of pence more expensive than, a, <laughs> than, less, than an unbranded crisp. So like, my mum would be like, you're just paying extra for the label. You're not. We're not having those. Well, bits of pizza, of course, were
0: advertised with an animated advert to the tune of "Bits and Pieces" by the Dave Clark Five, as in "I'm in pieces <laughs> for bits of pizza," which actually referenced the fact they were made by Walkers throughout the song, which is really, really weird when you think about it. Kids wouldn't have cared about that; they would have just liked bits of pizza. But isn't it funny that whenever Dave Clark is on BBC Four going on about how he invented the '60s and how he was bigger than all four Beatles combined, it's just nobody mentions that <laughs> song. He doesn't mention bits of pizza as one of his achievements, does he?
1: Yeah, no, it's funny how he doesn't mention that. The other thing he never mentions is the fact that he used to play table tennis against my dad at a youth club in Tottenham in the late sort of late 50s. Did he have to win I'm wondering. See my dad is very much a man who he doesn't have to win but he sort of usually did win things <laughs> he was very very good at sport and had a number of kind of little trophies for his youth club table tennis state. so I imagine Dave Clark probably hated him for that reason. This is explaining a lot now. <laughs> it sort stems from that that's where the Dave Clark inferiority complex comes
0: from. Well I'm going to have to really Really convolutedly dive back to the start of this and mention Michael Staniford again because obviously, around the time your next choice was made, he was all over Children's BBC. He wasn't in this though, so it's the worst (laughs) link I've ever done. But anyway, I'm there now, so there. That was the theme of the Enchanted Castle, 1979 BBC One E nesbitt adaptation, which, as I'll come back to, is something I get asked about a lot because of this show. But Joe, what are your memories of it?
1: My memories of this are quite vague because I was tiny at the time. I mean, I can't have been more than probably three and a half, four when I saw this. So my memories of it are quite vague and also extremely eerie. (laughs) I remember really unsettled by it kind of captivated by it but unsettled by it which is kind of a theme of things that I liked as a child that were both kind of fascinating but also sort of unnerving and it was again not like The December Rose in the sense that The December Rose was very gritty and this was very not but it was one of those really kind of I remember it being sort of quite well made period dramas that the BBC did really well for kids except this one was a sort of fantasy element so it was an E. Nesbitt adaptation so probably Edwardian rather than Victorian actually and the thing I mainly remember about it was that there was a group, as in most Dine's adaptations, there was a group of children, a group of very posh kids in sort of pinafores and shorts and plus fours who got involved in some sort of magic. And I think there was a wish making element. So it was essentially five children in it, but without the cute little Samiad thing. And they would be able to make wishes invariably with moderately frightening consequences. The bits I remember were statues coming to life, always terrifying. I also remember some sort of human figures that I think were kind of made out of old clothes that had come to life. I think they were called the Ugly Wugglies that were really, really frightening, properly scary. And the whole thing just having that sort of weird, dreamlike, hauntological kind of feel to it that's stayed with me That stayed with me until now for the next 42 years that's how much of an impression it made on me because I really was really fascinated by it and it was very very creepy
0: well yeah I only have very hazy memories of it from the time because I didn't tend to like anything with you know well behaved children in. it just didn't seem to really <laughs> register with me for some reason you know bear in mind around this time the Just William series was on ITV oh, so you know oh, that cool. kind of thing was coming in Marmalade Atkins was on the horizon but Since I started doing Looks Unfamiliar, the thing I get asked about the most, it's overtaken Interceptor, it's overtaken Captain Space Detective, is people just messaging me randomly on Twitter or whatever saying, I can't remember the name of this program I saw where there were these people called the Ugly Wugglies with sort of cardboard faces and was terrified of it. (laughs) And it doesn't matter how many times I answer that, they just keep coming. Nobody's identified that film that I saw a couple of times on German cable TV in the 90s it took ages to get a copy of Orion that Mitch Ben talked about. All kinds of things like that, gone to no response. But this is—it just keeps it somehow an entire generation haunted by it and don't
1: know what it is. Yeah, it's weird that people don't know what it is because it took me. It, I'll be honest, it took me a while to find out what it was. It was only really when the internet was invented that I was able to investigate exactly what this program was because I remembered the program. I remember the program quite clearly, but I don't think I remembered what it was called. I just remembered those key scenes from it and probably when I you know first had access to the internet in the kind of late 90s I would have spent ages like searching for I've spent ages asking Jeeves what was that TV series with the ugly monkeys in <laughs> it yeah I think it's weird that people don't remember they remember those moments from it but they don't remember the sort of what the actual premise of the program was and even I'm quite hazy on that I don't know I can't re- quite remember how the children and I've read the book as well and I can't quite remember remember even from the book, and I think the TV series was a bit different from the book anyway, but I can't quite remember how the wishes were granted or how the children even stumbled across this kind of wish granting system at all. I just, but I just remember them wishing for things and it would always go wrong in a way that was really frightening. Just stop wishing for things, kids. They all end in tears well it seems to be considered one of Nesbitt's
0: lesser works I mean the Wikipedia page is very short which is why I've got very little to say about it you know it basically just has a very brief plot summary and the date of publication and the publisher and so on and it mentions the BBC serial and says citation needed after it I think the <laughs> fact that it was on is citation enough but what I've mainly found looking around is it again you know this is why is it at the forefront of people's minds but it seems to be driving a lot of dreadful arguments about how children's tv was better when i was a child because they did scary things like this well yeah but that's because you were a child at the time and that's how children's tv (laughs) was then that's what children wanted then they don't want that now they want different things now and there's nothing wrong with it now it's just you have got old and it's not being made for you anymore get used to it or i'll send the ugly wugglies round
1: (laughs) Please not that. Anything anything but the ugly wugglies. I think um, because I haven't got kids of my own, so I don't really know what kids' TV is like these days. So I don't really have that kind of sense of things were better on TV when I was a child. I just remember almost all children's television of that kind, certainly all kind of children's drama from when I was a child being a bit frightening. Now, I don't know whether that's just because I was watching things when I was a bit too young, because I was tiny when I watched The Enchanted Castle. And you and I have discussed before The Strange Affair of Adelaide, Paris, which I was also terrified by, and I could also—I was probably would have been about three or four when I saw that as well. But I do remember everything being terrified. But perhaps children now are just more well balanced. Perhaps they just don't want to be kind of. Perhaps they don't just want to sit gripped
0: by fear all the time. Well, one possible thing that you know, because I tend to think about these things a bit more analytically than people go for clickbait articles, which I know sounds <laughs> a bit arrogant, but it's also true. But yeah. I think it's because in those days, children's television wasn't really allowed to explore issues. It was always like headline news even long before the Zamo thing. If Grange Hill was going to have a storyline about domestic abuse or something, and people say, you can't do this. And so they had to kind of teach children about the world in different ways, with, I suppose with short, sharp shocks, which is why everyone remembers things like, well, not the Colorado Beetle, because that wasn't trying to warn them. <laughs> things like the you know the frisbee substation public information film again grange hill that kid who fell off was it a supermarket that they climbed up in one of the early series you know that sort of thing Uh well like the december rose like the shocks in that it doesn't really go that far into the whole exploitation of children that's behind the whole storyline in that yes it just kind of paints it as this is bad because these things happen around it and i wonder if it was that if it was just different way of approaching communicating things to children
1: yeah and i think with That kind of with the enchanted castle as well and also five children it which obviously came much later but it is that kind of wish granting thing it is a kind of cautionary tale isn't it it is that sort of it's literally be careful what you wish for so I think there is a message there somehow (laughs) maybe people just wanted to terrify children I don't know (laughs) maybe it was that simple but I think I do think you're right there weren't many like you say the, the issues at the heart of things were not necessarily would kind of become a background rather than the key point of the drama the other thing about enchanted castle was I think it was one of those ones where again a theme in all the nesbit adaptations because the treasure seekers is like this as well and the railway children to a lesser extent actually is that they were always kind of the kids always sort of seemed to think that they were poor and they needed they were often <laughs> wishing sort of more money like the treasure seekers their whole thing is oh oh dear we don't have any money so we must make some money for father and it's like you live in like a four-story townhouse in <laughs> you've got You've got servants and a nanny. You're not poor. You've got loads of money. What are you you talking about? Look at Barnacle from the December Rose. That's a child that's poor. (laughs) So I always sort of used to think the kids were a bit kind of a bit spoiled and kind of needed a bit of a clip around the ear, really. Posh kids on television, I sort of found quite irritating anyway. Well, all kids on television. I didn't really like other children being on television when I was a kid. (laughs) (laughs) didn't <laughs> really want to watch. I used to hate anything that had sort of children doing the presenting or I used to hate things where stage school children would be kind of allowed to present things in a sort of over-enunciated overly precocious way I just thought they were showing off and needed to be taken down a peg or two. I didn't want to see any prodigies on my television <laughs> I also used to hate it on things like Blue Peter or other kind of factual children's programming where they would feature a child who had like a really amazing hobby like it be yeah so I'm a child rock climber or I do carriage racing like when they were 10 and they'd show them getting ready or scuba diving and I'd sort of think how come you're allowed to do this <laughs> this, is, this isn't interesting I'm just jealous I'm just envious <laughs> I just get really, I'm like, why is my life really boring by comparison to this I just, just get really annoyed like, where's the money
0: for this coming from well do you think the children in the inside of the castle might have actually wished for that to annoy other
1: children that's what they wish yeah I, yeah they, they thought like I wish here in 1910 I hope that it In the sort of late 70s, early 80s, children will be very annoyed by us not being grateful
0: for what we've got. Well, there's one thing they couldn't wish for, which a lot of children did get around them, which is your next choice, where let's just hear the dulcet tones of this individual.
2: Now there's a friend your child can have all the time, Major Morgan. By matching any of the colours, numbers, symbols or letters to the keyboard, they can play many of the tunes they know and love. Get in step with Major Morgan and making music becomes child's play. Major Morgan from Play School.
0: Okay, you might have thought that was a stylophone. It was actually the lovely, lovely sounds made by Major Morgan, the electronic organ. Joe, who was he?
1: Major Morgan was a musical toy as, well, I mean musical in the loosest sense for kids, which was kind of like a handheld, I think he was a sort of bandsman, like a kind of band leader, like a brass band leader. And in his stomach, he had a sort of touch panel, like a, a kind of a fairly crude touch panel with the musical notes on. And in order to play a tune you would touch the musical notes but crucially the idea was that you would play kind of uh, tunes that were presumably all in the public domain but you would slide a kind of code card into Major Morgan and then follow a kind of key along the top. There's, I'm explaining this very badly, but that's because it was very complicated. <laughs> so you would slide in the card for, I don't know, Tinkle Tinkle little star, and that would have symbols on it, and you would be pressing the symbols according to a key that went along the top. So you weren't actually pressing A when you wanted to play the note A, you were pressing a blue triangle, and that was how you would play the tunes. But each card tune had a different set, of symbols on it so it sort of just became increasingly complicated and increasingly difficult and actually much more difficult than just learning how to play a keyboard I don't really know what they were trying to achieve with Major Morgan other than probably annoying hundreds of parents because it made an awful noise it was a horrible a really horrible sort of harsh electronic kind of parping noise which I mean I, I, I feel really sorry for my mum and dad having to listen to that because I was very bad at playing it as well so yeah really dreadful I imagine it probably sounded even worse when the batteries start to run out and it would probably groan a little bit and go a bit off key.
0: There were loads of toys like that around then though. I think it was just a technology thing but most of them were themed. That was the thing because there were things like Simon and the Little Professor as well where it was school sneaked in through the back door by yeah. the idea of you know yeah. look this is amazing but the branded element always put me off and I think the best analogy I can draw is speak and spell which didn't go for that. It was just or hey, something fun you can have with letters that is on when david bowie did a kind of new wave re-recording of panic in detroit in 1979 they use a speaking spell saying detroit on it nobody's ever used major morgan unless radiohead have like got one out and gone oh do you not see oh it's satire which is possible but That, to me, it doesn't say it all. I don't know what I'm talking about, but that's that's how it always presented itself to me.
1: It was like a cross between... So it was awful to listen to. And at the time, I really enjoyed playing with it, but in retrospect, it was awful to listen to and even harder to master because it was like a cross between a stylophone and an Enigma machine, basically. It was incredibly complicated to play and it made a horrible noise and was sort of shaped like an old man, like Little Professor was, which in itself is a bit weird. I had Little Professor two, which was just a calculator on which you could only do the sums it asked you to do. I don't really know what that was all about. It didn't speak it wasn't like the sister toy to speak and spell, speak and maths. It wasn't like that. It didn't speak. It just sort of had an LED calculator screen that would flash up sums and you would put the answer in and it would tell you if you were right or wrong. I mean just buy your kids a calculator if you're gonna do that. <laughs> and with Hogan, just buy they're gonna learn the recorder when they go to school. Just just wait till then. Just just get them to, you know buy them a Casio P T one. It was it's better. Like it, it's easier it's easier and it sounds better the tunes that i remember from major morgan as well but it was tunes were always sort of quite poor because like i say they were all probably sort of public domain kind of tunes that they could get away with playing so some of them were nursery rhymes but i do remember that i'm sure one of the tunes in it was on top of old smoky which was like what What five-year-old wants to play that
0: It's strange as well that these things all sort of came in around the time that you know synthesizers were starting to be a really big thing in pop music no longer novelty noises it You know, people like Gary Newman were... Weirdly, when you think about it, the equipment that they were using was absolutely massive and complicated, and they specialised in minimal sounds. But this stuff doesn't seem to have been the kind of riding the wave of that. They don't seem to have been thinking, well, kids are probably going to want one of those and they can't have one. So, you know, here's an electronic, well, not even keyboard thing that can play themselves. But it seems to have just been attempts to remake the stylophone, really, with modern equipment, including speech equipment, on some of them like we've said which isn't really like a style of phone, but I think I know what I'm saying
1: <laughs> yeah and with and the speech would always be like the speech on speak and spell and speak and maths was that really horrible electronic American voice that <laughs> a bit like a bit like the voice on Sparky the magic piano that's a bit like sort of unnerving in itself I think it was just that it was almost as if kids have always had like toy musical instruments haven't they you know but I think it was just a kind of it's like we can do things electronically now therefore we will I <laughs> Children love electronic things, so let's just make everything electronic and have the word electronic in the title of the toy as well, and have the electronic element of it as a real kind of selling point. There were a lot of things like that, and they all made horrible noises that just
0: dreadful. And you are right about them all either being designed to look like old men or having male voices.
1: <laughs> yeah, none of them were women. Little Professor particularly was a very elderly man, and also like was teaching maths that was frankly well below the pay grade and level of expertise of a professor, I would say, because it's kind of infant school maths. I don't really know what was meant to appeal to kids about that. But, I mean, you know, I I had Little Professor and I had Major Morgan, and I do remember enjoying playing with Major Morgan. It's only really in retrospect that it was terrible. So maybe there's something in that. Maybe kids do like to be taught things by old men. Maybe that's why Bellamy was so popular. Well, I've got a faint recollection. Did they do a Little
0: Professor S or something for girls? Kind of like a <laughs> Little straight. Miss kind of thing. I've just got a vague recollection of that. That'd I can't be. find anything to back that up, but I seem to remember that. No. No, oh,
1: I'm getting kind of flashbacks now you've said that. Maybe they did. I wonder why my parents didn't buy me that one. I, won't, I wonder why I got the old man version. Mm, I'm going to look into that. There wasn't a Majorette Morgan, though. So. <laughs> there wasn't a Majorette Morgan. Also, I, Majorettes were awful. I didn't like Majorette. Girls at my school who were in the Majorettes, I had no time for them. Okay, well, coming on to your last choice now, which is
0: something else that I imagine if your reaction was anything like mine, you've got no time for either. <laughs>
2: (laughs) (laughs) Elaine Page is on BBC Two in a quarter of an hour in the concert at the Royal Albert Hall which completed her first UK tour. Here on BBC One in half an hour we shall relive the Royal Tour of Japan where the Prince and Princess of Wales were welcomed as most honoured guests. And now...
0: okay, no idea what I will have put there because at the time of recording I could not find a single trace of this (laughs) anywhere but it has haunted my memory ever since. Joe, Wilderness Road, please can you talk about it instead?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm not surprised there are no clips of Wilderness Road because nobody would ever want to see Wilderness Road again. Wilderness Road was possibly not only the most depressing sitcom I've ever seen, but also just the least funny. I think that's why I remember it. There were other depressing sitcoms. I remember a lot of sitcoms being really depressing from sort of my childhood. Only When I Laugh, depressing. Shelley, depressing. Open All Hours, depressing. Miserable people, bleak. Everyone sort of looks like they need a bath. Most of the time, I don't know. Everyone looks like they probably smell a bit. Wilderness Road was all of those things, but crucially also not funny, like not funny at all. And and didn't really even seem to make any sense in the setup. It was about a couple of blokes who were called Cage and Moon. I mean, I think they were just sort of unemployed, unemployed layabouts, really. That was the kind of the implication. I think they lived either in or above a really horrible pub. And they just sort of spent all their time in the pub drinking and looking like they needed a good shower. And their friend was a stripper, also, you know, bleak, sort of a a pub stripper as well. So quite low rent. I think they were kind of bothered by local villains at one time. So I think I remember the Gary Olsen from 2.4 Children, I think, was in it, maybe as one of the villains. And I remember one of Cage and Moon, I can't remember which one was Cage and which one was Moon, was played by Robin Driscoll, who only ever sort of seems to crop up in really tiny parts in things. I think he was in Mr. Bean quite a lot. Whenever he did crop up in a tiny part on something, me and my mum and my brother would all point to the screen and say, oh, look, it's mate. Because in Wilderness Road, he called the other character mate all the time, but really over-pronounced it in a way that, like, nobody who calls people mate, like, I call people mate all the time, but you don't really over-enunciate it. You call people mate, you don't call them mate in a really weird RP kind of way. That's the main thing that anyone, remember, that my family remember about Wilderness Road, is just that, just that Robin just, just that it was depressing, and that Robin Driscoll called everyone mate in a really irritating way. It's inexplicably bad, inexplicably. Well, the
0: main thing I remember is, because it was on in 1986, I think, on BBC One, and I remember thinking, ooh, that's going to be good, because it was written by Bob Goody, who is a name who's kind of disappeared He used to be on things like Dear Heart, the BBC2 teen sketch show and so on. But he was also, originally, he was Mel Smith's first double act partner. And they had the children's ITV series called Smith and Goody. And whenever I mention that, people around my age, there's always someone that goes, oh my God, I used to love that. I've not thought of it from that day to this. (laughs) Smith and Goody, what little has resurfaced of it? I've seen it was really good. Genuinely, really good. It was Mel Smith trying to, I think it was ostensibly to encourage reading, but through humour and sketches. And, you know, it was Mel Smith with tailoring his comedy down for children, so it was yeah. going to be great, whatever. And I remember thinking, yeah. oh, this is my Bob Goody, it's going to be really good. And it felt like it had no jokes in, and like you say, it was really depressing. What's really weird is, in the 80s, you got a load of these depressing sitcoms. I mean, not just things like this, and Bread, Comrade Dad, which was about the Russian invasion of Britain with George Cole. <laughs> you no, know, all kinds of things like The Ladies a Trump, one of the first Channel 4 ones, which I remember really liking, but it was about two homeless women foraging for food and so on. <laughs> the one that kind of bucked that trend, which is completely forgotten, is the only reason I remember this was because it was set in Liverpool, but there was a sitcom called Help!, which had I think was it Stephen McGann and Jake Abraham and can't remember the third guy's name. But it was a deliberate reaction to the way well, things like Bread and the Boys and the Black stuff, you know, with such a bleak, unrelenting view of life that they were three guys on the dole who were constantly looking for work, looking to try and get out of it, looking to better themselves. You know, just continual gag about one of them read a broadsheet newspaper ostentatiously when they saw people <laughs> reading ironically what happened a couple of years later. The sun and things like that and it was trying yeah. to be aspirational is the wrong word because you weren't really <laughs> watching it aspiring to be then but it was about it was upbeat it was positive they were looking at a way forward in life yeah And that's like, the one that's been forgotten it went on for about three series i think and that's the one that's been forgotten that like, is so weird to me it's almost like people well i say people want to be depressed but judging by the fact nobody talks about wilderness
1: road maybe they didn't want to be that depressed <laughs> <laughs> no one wants to be that depressed <laughs> The thing is, is that I can cope. I can cope with sitcoms being depressing if they're funny. I've got quite a bleak, sort of dark sense of humour. I, I don't mind a sitcom being depressing or bleak or dark if it's also really funny and really well acted. And this was Wilderness Road was none of those things. It was almost like a sort of sitcom that you would kind of dream in a kind of weird, like, you'd wake up in the morning and think, oh, my God, I had a really weird dream last night that there was a sitcom about two kind of people that just didn't really do anything. And one <laughs> of them called his friend Mates all the time. And it was everyone was really grubby. Like That's the sort it was like that. It was just inexplicably awful. Really, really dreadful. It's interesting what you say about the aspirational scout sitcom being the one that no one remembers. That's probably considerably more sort of people actually looking for. For work clearly is a lot more aligned to most people's experience of that time than just sort of still living with your mum in your 30s and committing benefit fraud like they did
0: in bread or being lost three million years into deep space it's weird that that's the sitcom (laughs) of the 80s is really best yeah
1: Yeah, that's yeah i I don't quite know why that i think with wilderness road someone must have commissioned it watched it and thought yeah yeah this will do like who who was that who watched Wilderness Road and thought yeah this will take off I don't know it was just it was almost as if it had been put on for a bit well I would quite like to see an episode
0: again one episode I've got to stress that because you know we we remember these things we think how unfunny they were but I think of how much stuff that I have seen particularly when BBC 3 was a really active concern you know they did do some great shows but you know the half six slot on Radio 4 can be very guilty of this stuff that goes out where you would think at some point somebody would have said, "Hang on, there are no jokes in this," but it still gets <laughs> hyped. It's all over social media of things that are treated like the next big thing, and there's horrible, insulting, patronising viral campaigns about things, and then nobody remembers them.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'd be interesting to know how *Wilderness Road* was kind of advertised and trailed at the time because it was. I mean, I the fact that we settled down to watch it, me, my mum, and my brother settled down to watch it suggests that we must have thought it was going to be worth a try, you know. So I imagine it must have been sort of, it must have been kind of touted as something that was sort could be quite good. And it wasn't. It very much wasn't. Very much wasn't.
0: They do seem to have dropped it quite quickly, though, which, sadly, that doesn't make it like... I can never remember the name of this, but there was an Edward Woodward sitcom in, I think, about 1985, very early in the year on the BBC, and they'd obviously made a Christmas special at the same time as they made the series, and it bombed, and, like... (laughs) Come December that year, in the Radio Times double issue, nobody remembered that it had existed, <laughs> but there was a big spread of all the stars of the BBC over Christmas, and it had Edward Woodward in it, and they asked him some very non-committal quote, not about the programme or what was in it, but about what he was doing for Christmas. <laughs> So I think they were onto Wilderness Road from early on enough not to get into that trap.
1: I can't. The thought of watching Wilderness Road at Christmas <laughs> would be <laughs> enough. Would be enough to finish anyone off. Honestly, there could be nothing worse than that. That would be the most depressing Christmas of all time. It would be worse than an EastEnders Christmas episode. I also remember, which I think was a bit later on, but there was that weird one with Carl Howman as Death oh mulberry. mulberry yes yeah. yeah it was like oh this is quite whimsical and this cheeky chappy who used to be in brushstrokes is kind of foring the the stony heart of this old woman oh but also he's death, so he's got to kill her like hang on <laughs> what what's going on that was bleak and dep- well, not as depressing i mean everyone kind of looked like clean in it and it like wasn't always really dingy and all the sets weren't Brown, but yeah, still quite grim if I
0: remember correctly. And yet, at the time, people would have had you believe that it was the late-night Sunday slot on ITV where everything was noisy and vulgar and depressing. And I'm sorry, the New
1: Statesman had nothing on any of these things. No. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. I, yeah, really, yeah. If I talk any more about Wilderness Road, I'll just, I will just have to go away and just put my head in a gas oven, to be honest.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, that's fair enough. Do you think you've ever seen actually the a more depressing sitcom, especially in more recent years?
1: I'll have a look for one. I'll have a look and see if I can find anything that would be more depressing than that. And I, I can't. I can't imagine <laughs> that there ever is.
0: Well, whatever it is, please don't choose it next time Rob. Jo, it's been brilliant.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: Not On Your Telly by Tim Worthington From Fish To Fun To Ski Boy The Ultimate Guide To The
2: TV That Time Forgot Find out more at TimWorthington.org